0: Take your copies of the scriptures and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1st Corinthians. Our New Testament reading this morning will be the sermon, uh, the text for the sermon. 1st Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be reading the first uh, 14 verses. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you might, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Join me in prayers. As we ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching and hearing of His word. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, dear Lord, as we open now Your word, and we pray that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, so that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints. Indeed, as you have said, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge and that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Speak to us, dear Lord, we pray. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what a wonderful blessing. Uh, that we can this Lord's Day come again and we can celebrate uh, both sacraments ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ, both baptism and then the Lord's Supper following the sermon. Um, Of course, we as a church, we celebrate weekly these things. Uh, We celebrate weekly, not baptism weekly, but the Lord's Supper indeed. Um, And we weekly delight to remember and praise God for sending us the Savior, the person of Jesus Christ, that one to whom and about whom all of redemptive history pointed towards, indeed the culmination of all of those, uh, all of those point pointers. One of my favorite hymns in this regard, in regard to, that, it speaks of redemptive history, it's that hymn uh, that's about to come into season by virtue of the time of year, uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem. You're probably all well aware of that well-known hymn, and in that hymn, is one of my favorite line, lines in a hymn, an uninspired text, but nevertheless, it speaks the truth and says this. It succinctly captures the beauty of redemptive history uh, when it says this: uh, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Thee tonight. Speaking of Christ coming, the culmination of all of these things, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ as He comes and accomplishes redemption. For his people, and that's it, right? That's that's what this all of this unfolding of history drives towards. What it all comes to is Jesus. Comes to Jesus. We have just witnessed a baptism, brothers and sisters. Baptism is a rich and a wonderful topic, and we're going to look closer at this text this morning as at the sacrament. As we look at our text this morning and a number of others. it's been a number of years since uh, we've taught or preached specifically on baptism, so I thought it would be a good good opportunity to do that again this morning to re- remind ourselves and to reacclimate ourselves uh, just what it is that we confess and what the testimony of God's word is in this regard. Uh, we've just heard some of the basic reasons in this in this uh, administration of this sacrament, why it is that we baptize adults and with them their children. And again, this morning I wanted to point out from our text some, some some other points that may not be always obvious to, to us um, or thought about in regard to baptism. And when we look at the, the history of the church and we look at the literature and the practice of the historic church, uh, we find a prayer that would be prayed right before baptism was administered. It's not one that we pray, uh, but it's interesting that we look at these documents and the practice of the church um, and in those prayers they would refer to God's righteous judgment in the flood of Noah and his righteous judgment in the Egyptians being punished, judged by, uh, uh, for, as Israel crossed the Red Sea, be references to these things. And so as baptism was administered, references were made to these Old Testament events that would seem uh, in our day and age, in our place in history, as maybe um, interesting. Maybe they don't have anything to do with baptism. The flood in the Red Sea, Much less infant baptism. But as we look at the New Testament, we see of course they would reference these things. Of course they would refer to these events in redemptive history because they're following the New Testament's practice of referencing these things. The early church didn't just make this stuff up because, according to the New Testament, these do have to do with baptism, the flood, and the crossing of the Red Sea. And so this morning I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 10. And see what we might learn from it. And we'll see why the church of old, following the pattern of the New Testament, could use these texts. And we'll also see that this text, these the, the texts show us what God wants us to do regarding baptism. Particularly, who are the subjects of baptism? Who are to, Who is to come under the waters of baptism? And so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning uh, that I want to see is the mutual history of God's people. The mutual history of the people of God and you'll notice as you look at the text uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 how uh, the Apostle Paul begins uh, this chapter and he says I want you to know brothers our forefathers and I want you to know brothers our forefathers you see what Paul is doing there he's riding to a church I'll remind you as you I'm sure you remember, that's made up, um, uh, if not entirely, uh, mostly of Gentile members. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth, as we've been looking at in our uh, current series at the church, uh, the Corinthian letters, they were a very problematic uh, group of individuals. They were a very problematic church. Uh, there are plenty of issues going on there. Yet, nevertheless, Paul is still willing to call them brothers, even though some of the sins that they were engaged in and were rampant there, would have caused us to cringe, would have caused us to think, could they even be called the church at all? And yet Paul has no problem, you remember in the opening chapters, the opening verses of 1 Corinthians, calling them brothers, and again here brothers. He calls them the church at Corinth. He calls them saints by calling. He refers, he has no problem referring to them as such. And he says to this Gentile church, This church that's struggling in its behavior and in its church life. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our forefathers, right? And Paul's speaking to the church that has no Jewish heritage. They have no common history, either nationally or physically, with Israel. Yet Paul includes this whole church and he says, you brothers share our history because you are now believers in Christ. And the history of the Old Testament becomes your history. And those people way back there, they're your people. You're part of their family. They have a common faith and a common God whom you believe. And this is significant that we understand this. These clues that are scattered, they're not so hidden. They're actually quite obvious. Uh, Because in our day, it's dominant. The dominant view is to believe that the church and Israel are two entirely different things. They're two entirely different entities, uh, uh, which we should never meet. They should be distinguished. That's not quite what we see in the writings of the New Testament. When we read the pages of Scripture, we see that Paul has no problem whatsoever in joining the Gentile church into the one story that is already being told. God draws them in to that story. Paul says we have this mutual ancestry. We have this mutual faith. The Bible makes clear that we, we Jew and Gentile, these branches are grafted together into the same root. Remember Ephesians two, right? It's the point is not to make the Gentiles Jews or the Jews Gentiles. They are both one new man in Christ, and all the dividing wall and all the hostility in His flesh has been done away with. They are a new man, and so it should be clear from the text that this unity, this unity. Uh, It truly exists between believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New. And they're not separated. They're not separated by some uh, different sort of faith or reality or plan or way or dispensation, you might say. And this is the only place that we see this uh, in the New Testament. We see this continuity throughout as as the New Testament unfolds. And we hear the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, from the pens of, of the writers, the authors, ultimately, which is the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul, you know, we, we see this when we look at things like this, right? When Paul is talking and he's discussing significant issues, when he's teaching on core doctrines in the New Testament, like, say, for instance, justification by faith, what does Paul do? When he's searching to come up with an example, what does he go to? He points to Abraham. He points to Abraham, and he says, Remember him? Remember Father Abraham, what happened with him? He believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness. Or when Paul is looking for an example of the blessed man who's had his sins totally forgiven, who's been purged utterly of all of his shame, he doesn't point to recent events like the forgiven tax collector or Peter and his denial of Christ at the crucifixion. Who does Paul point to? In Romans 5, he says, Remember David? Remember David? Oh, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Paul makes his case from the Old Testament because it's the history of God's people. There, there are no two people or no two plans. There are the people of God. and God's working and drawing those people in and rescuing them for himself. And so this continuity, according to the Apostle Paul, even flows into the sacraments of the church in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And we see this next in the text this morning. There's this connection, this mutual history between God's people in the Old and in the New Covenants, the New Testaments. And think about that for a minute, brothers and sisters. What a a glorious truth. What a wonderful truth that God calls us, He brings us into His story brings us into His story, this unfolding history for the redemption of His people of which He's made you a part. You belong to Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. He is yours. You are His. This is your history. This is your history, brothers and sisters. And that should be warrant and cause and motivation for praise, great praise and delight of this King and God. Praise Him. Delight in His love, brothers and sisters. Glory to God. Give it to Him alone. And so we see this mutual history of God's people. And then next we see uh, the meaning of baptism. The meaning of baptism. Uh, Let's look at what baptism means in the Old Testament according to the New Testament. The New Testament is the Old Testament's interpreter. It it gets the last word. It gets to tell us what it means. Remember the structure of God's revelation to us. There's the preparatory word. Then there are the acts. The, 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 The culmination of that in Christ. And then there's the explanatory word. And so what does that explanatory teach us about all the preparation that led uh, to, to, to the hopes and fears of all the years being met in thee tonight? What does the New Testament say um, about what these baptisms were in the Old Testament? What, what can we learn from that? When we do this, we'll learn something of, we'll see what the subjects of baptism, uh, whom they were as well. And so Paul is clear here. He's very clear about whom he is speaking in 1 Corinthians 10. Again, he says what? 1 Corinthians 10, he says, all Israel, all Israel was under the cloud and passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul says that there was a baptism that took place in the Old Testament. And he uses these interesting references that perhaps we've not thought about in some time, perhaps you've not thought about in some time. The cloud and the sea. He says, those were a baptism. When he does this, he's teaching us about our present Christian life in doing so. And he's teaching us, he's telling us, it's part of history. And so we want to understand what he's talking about here. And so when we think of these things, uh, what does it mean that we're baptized in the cloud and in the sea? Well, what is a cloud? I think in the, in, the, in, in the Bible, what is the cloud? What is the cloud? Maybe be coming to mind for some of you when we go through the Old Testament. You'll notice that the cloud had a particular reference there. Had a particular meaning. It's, 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 it's full of, of meaning there. And what it is, it's a, the cloud is a sign and a symbol of God's presence with his people. His presence with his people. And so as we read, when Israel is let out in the Exodus, the cloud is there by day and the pillar of fire by night. That's God's way of showing that He is with them, to lead them, to protect them. Or think about when the tabernacle is constructed or the temple is built. Remember what happens? This, this cloud comes and it fills the entirety of the te- uh, temple or the entirety of the tabernacle in order to show what? That, to show that God's presence has come. And he is there with his people. Or think of when the people gather at Mount Sinai. They gather at Mount Sinai. The cloud comes, and when it settles upon the mountain, they know that God has arrived. He is there. And so when Paul references here the cloud, he's, making, he's clearly making a reference to the presence of God. It's a specific incident that takes place in the Old Testament that we read about this morning um, in Exodus 14. And remember from that text, uh, God's presence is with Israel. It's there in the sign of the cloud. And it's leading them out. It's leading them out and they're in a panic. The Egyptians are behind them. And we see the cloud leads them out and then it rises and it goes behind them. And it becomes their rear guard to defend them. And Paul says regarding this cloud, amazingly, Paul says regarding this, that they were under it. They're under it and that they were baptized into it. What are we to make of that? Paul calls this movement of the cloud over them, oddly enough, a baptism. And then he goes on to say that the sea, they were baptized in the sea. That might sound strange to us again, interesting, maybe not on our radar, because who was it in that event who were wetted, who were baptized? It was the Egyptians. The Egyptians were the ones that got wet. He clearly refers to it as a baptism. The sea is referring, of course, to that very event, the Red Sea. It's this well-known event. It's the great redemptive event of the Old Covenant. The exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. Behold the salvation of the Lord, remember, from our text. And remember, if we look at what was going on, what happened leading up to that passage in Exodus 14, it's even referenced in Exodus 14, um, and in our, in our text in the New Testament this morning, um, we see that God had sent the angel of death, remember, on the night of the Passover, into where Pharaoh finally says he's had it, and he says, take your people and get out of here. And the Israelites, they made their journey, and they're going in haste towards the promised land. And then they realize that Egypt is now following them, and that Pharaoh has again changed his mind. And that he wants to come out to them and bring back his labor force. And do you remember? Do you remember what our forefathers in the faith, right, these mighty and courageous and brave men, remember what their response was to Moses? Verse 11, Exodus 14, says, the question comes, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Not included in the chapters of the Heroes of Faith, uh, in the, those, those culminated books that you get. Not courageous, brave, and mighty men. They're complaining to Moses. They're saying, you brought us here out to be murdered by this army? That we, There's no way that we can fight? This is not the height of faith of Israel. They're panicked and they don't know what to do. And what does God tell them? He tells them, he, God tells Moses to instruct the people that God is going to be with them and God is going to be for them. God is going to fight on their behalf. They need but to be silent and behold the salvation of God. And notice when they come to the Red Sea, Right again, they don't think. Right, they don't, their, their expression, their reflex is not... It's Baptism Sunday. Fantastic. That's not the attitude of their hearts. Their spirits are weary. This is what we've been waiting for. Where we make our profession of faith and everyone knows about our commitment to God, the God of Israel. It's not not what's going on. Again, this is what Paul refers to as a baptism. What they find when they come to the Red Sea, Israel is certain death. In their minds, it's certain death. It's either from the army that's behind them, it's going to take them out, or they can die trying to get their stuff and their children and everything through the Red Sea ahead of them. So it's death ahead and death behind. There's no salvation in their eyes here. This does not look to Israel as good news. This is not the pure water of baptism that we're normally used to thinking of. These people are so certain that will lead to their death, that they say it would have been better for them to have just died in Egypt and to be let out there and die in the wilderness. But what happens? God commands. He summons. And the east wind comes. And it begins to separate the waters. And dry land appears. And then the whole nation marches through on dry ground. Safe. Where have we heard this kind of thing before? Our gracious God lays down patterns throughout Scripture for us to hear and to be attentive to and to recognize when we see them. There is a pattern here. Where have we heard this before? This is the first time in a, a story from Scripture, an event, a fact of history, that this is told to us in our Bibles. Where else can you think of in your Bible? Where we've seen chaotic waters that are commanded to be separated by the presence of wind. Of course, it's the very first pages of Scripture. The Bible says that the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters. Creation is covered entirely by water, and the very Spirit of God. And again, as you know, this is the same word for wind. Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Ruach Elohim. Ruach is hovering, blowing over the waters. God commands that the water is separated. and It separates. And finally, what appears in that creation narrative? It's dry land. Dry land. It's a place where His people can be established, where Adam and Eve can live and they can dwell and they can live after His commandment according to His Word and faith and glorify His name. The same thing takes place. The crossing of the Red Sea. The same God who commanded let light shine forth in darkness. The God who commanded the waters be separated at creation. He separates these waters and dry land appears. And The people walk through on that dry land. Ultimately knowing what? That they're going forth, they're walking forth into a brand new creation that God has made for them. He is their God. His presence is there. They are His people. And they are leaving behind the old world that they are coming from. And again, this isn't the only time that we see this pattern in the Bible. It's not the only time we see these elements presented to us to teach us something. Of course, I'm referring to the flood, the great flood of the time of Noah. These very same elements are there. This is that, that time when God ultimately undoes all of creation. And he recreates. Like at create creation, recall, the world is covered in what? Water. Covered in water. And there's only one family floating atop of those waters safely. And what does it take ultimately for dry land to appear? God sends a wind. And the waters recede. And behold, dry land appear. And Noah and his family walk out onto that land. Literally, into a brand new creation. It's a place where they are established to walk in God's ways and to live before Him by faith. There's a connection here in Scripture. It's a connection. And the connection is made not only uh, in the pattern that we see, but in, in the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, in verse around verse 20, um, he refers to the flood in reference to baptism. He calls it a baptism. So we have the, the, the Apostle Paul referring to the crossing of the Red Sea. That was a baptism. And then we have Peter. He's able to look back at the flood and he says, that was a baptism. And there's one family floating atop of those waters. That was a baptism. There's a Red Sea that people go through. That's a baptism, Paul says. And as these people walk through the waters of the sea... Right Again, because God sends a wind and dry land appears. And behold, a new creation is being entered into by Israel, God's people, calling out of Egypt. And Notice as Israel passes through these waters, Egypt is left behind and they are renounced. Israel is done ultimately on that side with that old way of life. And they're being issued forth to walk in a whole new way of life. And God is calling his people there. Calling his people by name through this action, he's calling them to renounce that old life. His name has been placed upon them; they have become his people through this action, and they are called from that time forward to live for him in faith, trusting and believing, relying upon him. Again, notice in Exodus fourteen, before he parts the seas, they have little or no faith. Right? remember they're grumbling, they're complaining, "We're going to die." Which is interesting. Prior to their baptism, they don't give a grand profession of faith as the entrance into that baptismal event. Again, it's very weak or little, if if, if at all. It would it be better for us to die than to come out here and be slaughtered? It's only after you see. It's only after the crossing of the Red Sea that they turn back and they see Egypt dead in the water, and they say, "Now we believe." Notice faith comes after their baptism. Again, look at Exodus fourteen, verse thirty-one. The end of that our Old Testament reading. Exodus fourteen thirty-one. There's Israel saved, and they see the Egyptians dead on the seashore. In verse thirty-one, it says Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. They saw the great power of the Lord against their enemies. And it goes on. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. And in his servant Moses. Right? It's prior to the event that faith comes. The New Testament clearly calls this action in Exodus a baptism. You see the pattern. The scripture is being is laying down for us. God is teaching us here. The meaning, something of the meaning of baptism. And then a third point that. I apologize I didn't make it into your outline in your liturgy, but uh, the third point would be, what's the mutual meaning for us today of baptism? You have the mutual history of God's people, the meaning of baptism, and then the meaning for us today, mutually, as God's people. Notice a few things about this as we go forward, what it means for us. Well, notice, looking at this big picture redemptive history, what scripture is telling us this macro structure and pattern. notice that primarily baptism is not first and foremost about our profession of faith and that goes against what what many many people think but it's not about first and foremost our profession of faith, many times when we look at it, we think the core baptism at the very center is our announcing to the world that we are going to follow God, and we should do that, and praise God that we do that we think, though erroneously, that the one who's being baptized is the active party. I'm sure you've heard that. And again, this seems somewhat, the sentiment is somewhat understandable. There's definitely a responsibility to follow God that flows from baptism. That's why we say the things we do and we make the vows that we do in baptism. But these children have to embrace for themselves and appropriate for themselves faith and obedience and repentance all of their life. But that is not the essential meaning of baptism. It's not what's happening in baptism. Those are byproducts of what is happening in baptism. And instead of being a sign of the profession of faith of the one being baptized, it's a sign of what God is doing for His people, what He's promising for them, the sign of God's presence with and for His people. And it's God's way of saying, I'm doing something for you. I'm opening up for you a whole new way of life. I'm bringing you through these waters. And I'm establishing you as a new nation. For myself. God is the active participant. He's the one that's promising. He's the one that's doing. Israel didn't even want to be there. And yet after God does these things, you notice what happens. They change their view of Him forever. Their view has changed of God. They saw the power of the Lord against the Egyptians and they trusted Him and believed Him. And also notice that baptism in this text, it's a sign, and this is very significant, it's a sign, it's a sign of judgment through which salvation comes. It's a sign of judgment through which salvation comes. These things are called baptisms, uh, the flood of Noah. Clearly the waters there are the waters of judgment, Correct? Who's being judged? The world. The watery judgment. Judgment waters of the flood to destroy them for their sin, their rampant sin. God judged the whole world, but but it's salvation for God's people who comes through those waters of judgment. The Ark of Christ, indeed, as it's referred to. And then think of the Red Sea. Um, Again, notice the Israelites aren't the ones who are under the water. It's the enemies of God's people. It's the Egyptians. They're the ones who come under the flood waters of judgment. Uh, They come under the judgment water through which salvation comes for God's people. They are dry. They are safe. They are spared those waters. And so, water we have to see in these incidents, in these episodes, throughout the Old Testament, is first and foremost the most a sign of God's judgment. Um, And by the way, hopefully some of your minds are thinking ahead to the end of uh, Holy Scripture, the book of Revelation when every tear is wiped away and all mourning is, is ceased and it says what? And the sea was no more the sea is no more right? there's pictures of dread, chaos waters and death eradicated and that ties into this as well but uh, the, the water is again first and foremost a sign of God's judgment but and this is this is the glory point here that judgment is thankfully borne out on others and not the recipients who are blessed with the blessing of baptism. Those judgment waters are upon another as God saves his people through them. And notice through these, these episodes that we're looking at in the Old Testament. Who was there? Who's there? The, 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 the nation of Israel coming out through the waters. Who was there? Children are there. Children. The whole family. Literally, children were baptized in that event. There's no way around it. It's a baptism? Paul says it's a baptism. Who was there? The whole nation. When the Israelites go from Egypt, they are clearly instructed to take their children with them. Again, Paul in our text this morning, all of Israel was in the cloud and in the sea. All of Israel was baptized. All of them did these things. So, literally, small children, infants, were brought through baptism way back then in the history of God's people and scripturated for us, for our instruction, for our good. And so we see that there's a historic community that we are connected to, right? Brothers, our forefathers, right? We're connected to this. They had a historic baptism. The Bible presents to us in the New Testament, clearly calling it a baptism. And everyone is involved, young and old. And we have to ask. What are the implications of that baptism? Right? What is the requirement of that baptism? What does it ask of us? Well, what is required after they are baptized is faith. Faith. Believe. Again, how do we know this? Looking back at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is trying to teach us something here. Trying to teach them something here. And for us, verse 1, Do not be unaware. Verse 6, these things took place as examples for us. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And he uses this illustration of Old Testament Israel, and he says this. He says, look, these people had a baptism. They had a meal, spiritual food, and they had a spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock, The rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. Paul's telling us to look at the similarities here. They were God's people. They had sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper. They had Christ with them in the wilderness. And there's this glorious little portion of that text that uh, we can rejoice in, right? In verse 9, we must not, like they did, put who to the test? They put Christ to the test. There's Jesus, there's Christ right there in the Old Testament. But Paul says that, that that they had all of that. But some of them did not what? They did not mingle all of these benefits with faith. And what was the result? They perished. They perished. Right there in the wilderness. And so Paul's definitely giving us a warning here in 1 Corinthians 10. It's a very stern warning. Again, beware that you do not do what they did lest you, lest you fall in the wilderness like they did. Again, so there's this, this historic community that we're connected to. They had a baptism. That baptism included infants. All those in the covenant community, all of them were baptized in the sea. And it required faith after baptism. What does that mean for us? Well, we saw in the Old Testament that the baptisms prefer not to signs of the participants' faith, first and foremost. Not even merely as signs of salvation, but rather they were signs of judgment waters through which salvation comes. Right? These waters are signs of, of judgment through which salvation comes. They're redemptive judgments. And that's glorious. It's, not, it's redemption through judgment. And in each of the Old Testament examples that we've looked at, both adults and their children were involved In baptisms, watery judgments that led to their salvation and ultimately to a whole new creation where God establishes them as His people. See the pattern that's being laid down there. Scripture is teaching us. And we look at this and we have to ask is this still true in the New Testament? Is this true? Is Is this how baptism is spoken of in the New as well? We look at the imagery that's used in the New Testament. And we see that it is, again, in Peter and in Paul. And we can look at the end of, end of uh, the Gospel of Mark, um, the end of chapter 10, Mark 10. And, and recall this, this episode where James and John come to Christ. And they ask him, and they say, we want to come into you. When you come into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right hand and your left. And you remember how Christ answered them. Christ says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Can you be baptized with that which I'm going to be baptized. Very interesting. What's he referring to? Referring to his crucifixion. Christ looks forward to the cross. He says, there I will be baptized. Can you do the same thing? And it shouldn't surprise us. And even if we've not made this connection um, outwardly, specifically, clearly... The cross is looked at in the scriptures as a baptism. How does that make sense? Clearly that's what he's doing. That's what Jesus is doing. Well, it makes sense if you realize when you see the pattern laid down from the beginning to this point, you realize that the flood, Noah, the crossing of the Red Sea, those judgment waters, they came and they did what? They destroyed the enemies of God. Destroyed God's enemies. And that's exactly what happens in the cross, is it not? God is pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon his enemies. And he's doing so through the crucifixion of his Son. For our sins, our death, our destruction is being borne by this one on the cross as he's baptized under the wrath of God. As God pours out on him all the fury the sins that we have committed. Praise God, is it, a, it is, is a redemptive judgment. It's a redemptive judgment. And it shouldn't surprise us. Because even when we talk about baptism, the, the imagery, in one sense, what comes to mind, even if we're not making these connections overtly, right, Paul, when Paul says things like, when he, when we were baptized with him and uh, we were buried with him in baptism, right, what does that imply? Death death. So Paul's making this link between Christ's death and our baptism. And so when we look at the cross, we see that that was judgment. The judgment waters of God being poured out on his son. And again, praise God, it it is a redemptive judgment. It's also interesting what happens once these judgment waters are poured out. Again, think of the pattern that we've been seeing throughout. There's waters of judgment God sends a wind. There's new creation. Is this what we see in the New Testament? Is this what we see in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Or is that something that's just left behind when God starts over? Is it do-over? It's not left behind. Notice what happens when Christ has died. And once God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, again, spirit, wind, this is linguistically all connected, The power of the Spirit raises Him from the dead. And He comes forth as what? The first man of the new creation. The firstborn of a new creation. The kingdom that He's inaugurating. Ushering in. As Christ ascends, what happens? What's the first thing that takes place at His ascension? You remember, in Redemptive History, in the book of Acts. The book of the Acts of the Apostles says that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty, rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they began speaking in tongues, and fire sets above their heads. The Spirit comes in the form that sounds like a rushing wind. And what is the result of this wind, this Spirit coming down on these people, speaking all these tongues? What happened as a result? The wonder wasn't that, it was the result. 3,000 people were added to the church that day. Judgment comes. Wind comes. New creation begins. It's the pattern. And all of a sudden, those who are lost and dying are born anew. And by the end of this event, this, where this mighty rushing wind comes, the Spirit comes down. And Peter, under the inspiration again of the Holy Spirit, he decides on that day, at the end of that sermon in Acts chapter 2, what does he say? At the end of that sermon, he says the promise of this Holy Spirit that has been poured out that you both see and hear the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off. Again remember who is Peter preaching to? He's talking to Jews from every nation under heaven. Jews have been raised on the Old Testament. they know the promise of Abraham right they know that promise that was given. I will be a God to you and to your children, and through you all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's speaking to Jews who know that when God redeemed them from Egypt, their children were part of those promises. He's speaking to Jews who know that on the eighth day their sons are set apart, holy unto the Lord, set apart from the world by receiving the sign of the covenant which was circumcision. He's speaking to Jews who teach their children from their youngest years you are part of God's family. Part of God's family. These Jews hear this first sermon of the New Testament church, this first sermon of the new creation church, and at the end of it, Peter says that very thing: the promise is for you, for your children, for the Gentiles. When they would, would, would those hearing this at all be shocked that their children are being included in something that God is doing? Not at all. It would have been completely normal for them. What are they shocked by? What are they shocked by as we read this event? They're shocked that the Gentiles are coming in. Not at all that their children get to come in. The children coming in has always been part and parcel of God's program. that works in families. Peter tells us there that that is going to continue. Peter makes this connection for us from the old into the new, at the start of the new creation. Church, and that's why we see in the rest of the book book of Acts, that when an individual believes, uh, and they have a household, who's baptized? Just singularly that individual? No, it's his whole family. As he represents, he's the head of that family. As we referenced earlier in 1 Corinthians 7, there's one believing parents, all those under them take the sign and belong to the community. Everyone in the household, they're all brought into the visible church and they receive the sign of the visible church, the sign of the covenant, community, the people of God. And that way of faith continues, again, from the Old Testament into the New. And you'll notice, it's not only in the book of Acts that we see this. Not only the book of Acts bears this out. When we look at the epistles, uh, the epistle of uh, uh, Ephesians, for instance, that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and Paul begins to instruct that church. Remember what he says. Right? Those first three glorious chapters. He said, Listen as I tell you about all the blessings that you have in the heavenly places. You are seated right now with Christ in glory. God who foreordained all things before the foundation of the world. He chose you before you were born. To be a part of God's family. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were children of wrath. He is made alive together with Christ. And he goes through all these blessings of salvation. Chapters 1 to 3. And then he begins to instruct the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Then he goes to the children. As children, someday in the future, when you grow up and you get bigger and you reach this mysterious age of accountability and become Christians, then you obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It's not what he says. It's not what he says. It's not his word to the children. Notice Paul doesn't make any differentiation in the congregation between ages. He even goes on to masters and servants. He covers the whole household. And he says to the children, obey your parents. What does he base it on? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is the first commandment with a promise. And he quotes from the Ten Commandments that was clearly given to the whole Israel covenant community, the whole family, the children, because why? They're part of that covenant community. And Paul makes this connection. And this doesn't change as we come into the New Testament of how God views our children. And this is why, brothers and sisters, it's why we brought this covenant child this morning for baptism without apology, and without shame, or without apo- uh, without apologizing, right? it's a glorious reality. And we're connecting. We're trying to be connected in the streams of redemptive history. And we affirm what God has done and what He has said through all of history that He is a God for us and for our children after us. Notice that these waters—they're just the beginning of our walk, of their walk with Christ. These waters will call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, day after day after day. We'll call them to believe and to repent of their sins day after day. These waters will name them. These waters that were judgment for Christ, their Savior, will become for them a sign of salvation, as they appropriate and they take hold of and they claim to those promises for themselves. But they will also be for them a warning will be a warning just like we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians 10. So dear brothers and sisters, you who have yourselves come under the waters of baptism, never forget, you were named with his own name. He named you in those baptisms. To you are the promises of God, and they demand that you repent and believe every day of your life as you look to Christ your Savior. You see, it it doesn't just demand that from the little ones. It demands that from all of us for all life long. Which is, by the way, why when we pour out the waters of baptism, we're required to remind you and to command and to warn you as a congregation. Remember your baptism with which you vowed to God. You were vowed to God yourself. And as you pass through those waters, you renounce the world and the flesh and the devil. You remember that. Now God is calling you and He's saying, I've blessed you with Myself. Don't turn back on those blessings. You continue to repent. You continue to believe. You continue to trust. Walk after Christ. Flee to Him. You see, this is not some sort of strange, magical guarantee. This is God's promise and His blessing of Himself for us, for you, dear Christian. And it requires what? It requires of us faith. Faith in the God who gives this gift. And that requirement is not a one-time decision. It is all life long. It is who you are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We throw ourselves on the work of Christ. We rely, rest in His strength. We rely in His provision for all of our lives. It is how He grows you. It is how He sustains you. It is how He protects you and guides you. It is because in those waters of baptism, the very judgment of that you deserve and that I deserve has already been poured out in Christ. It's already been poured out. The one who bore those flood waters and was drowned underneath them. So you and I might be set free. Free not to sin, but free from sin. We might live before the face of God as the new creations that He declares that we are. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. And if we have failed in those things. And when we fail in those things, the glory is that we look back and we cling to those promises that God made when He marked us and called us out of the world. And that we might reaffirm through repentance and faith that Christ is ours and we are His. Only by virtue of His strength and His power and His promise. See, baptism shows us that we are God's all life long. We we'll do not give up on the work that He's begun in us. We're securing His hand and the hand of the Father. Baptism says to us that God calls us to make not just one decision, but every decision for Jesus. And we might all life long look to the one who bore our judgment, and in gratitude give ourselves to Him afresh and again and always. And if we have failing. And as we have failed, to repent and to look to who we are. Even through our baptism, once again, who are we? We belong to Him. He's born our judgment. He's given us new life. We are new creations. These waters define us. Baptism tells us, again, who we are, even when we don't feel like it. Our feelings don't change our ontology. They don't change who we are. We belong to Him. We are His. His promise, His gift is greater than our feelings. And it's greater than our failings. Praise God. So may may you remember. May you remember again, brothers and sisters, who you are this day and every day and look to Christ afresh for your salvation, for your sanctification, for your very life. May we pray and plead these promises for our children that they as well, all life long, will believe and trust in the same faithful Savior who has claimed them in these waters of baptism, and also remember and rest upon Christ, who is our life and our peace. Praise God, brothers and sisters. When you descend back into the world, you remember who you are, to whom you belong, to who's called you out and set you apart from the world. It's our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.